First John chapter three. I'm going to be, begin in verse 10. And we also have side trips to John chapter eight and Genesis chapter four. How many of y'all were here on Sunday? You remember the title of the message? It was birthmarks part one. Can anybody guess what our title is going to be tonight? Birthmarks part two. Our text tonight will tell us that the children of God and the children of the devil both have defining birthmarks. Did you know that? Birthmark are of the children of God, though. It's not a dove or a cross. Gator fans, it's not even a tattoo of Tim Tebow. And the birthmark of the children of the devil is not a pitchfork or the number is 666. Seminole fans, it's not even a tattoo of Tim Tebow. For the politically minded, believe it or not, the, the, the uh, birthmark of the children of the devil is also not an elephant or a donkey. For you computer guys, it's not the image of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. No, you will find the birthmarks of both the children of God and the children of the devil in verse 10. You see it in this. The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. That means made obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Two birthmarks that very clearly point out which family you belong into. We, we saw that first birthmark on Sunday, right? Pretty much verses uh, five through nine. We saw that he says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's the first birthmark. Basically, if you are a son or a daughter of God, you are not perfect. And you know good and well that I'm not perfect, right? We're not sinless. We're not perfectly righteous. But these scriptures have been declaring we should be. We are practicing righteousness, right? If you are a child of God, you are practicing Righteousness, not because you have to, but because you want to. Just because you want to be, and we've made this comparison a few times, just because you want to be more like daddy, more like Abba, father. Ephesians 5, 1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, right? That's kind of your, your MO. If you're a child of God, you are practicing. You might not be perfect. You might not even be close to perfect. But you're practicing righteousness because you want to be like daddy. On the other hand, if you are not able, if you are, excuse me, able to abide in unrighteousness and abide means to settle down, right? To to just get real comfortable in unrighteousness. If you're able to settle down, make a lifestyle in sin, we saw on Sunday. Look, that's one of the birthmarks of the devil's children. I didn't say it. John said it, right? So that's one of the birthmarks. But the other birthmark is at the end of verse 10. We find it there. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Two, two birthmarks. One, practicing righteousness. The second, loving your brother. Now, before we go too much further, you might be looking at this and saying, now, I take offense at this whole line of thinking. Verse 10, in, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is, he, nor is he who does not love his brother. Wait, there's a problem with that. 
John, on the one hand, is saying that we should be loving, but here he calls people children of the devil. That doesn't seem very loving to me. I, I take offense at the whole line of thinking. How lo- unloving it is of the Apostle John to say such things, you think? I mean, would Jesus do that? Call people unloving? Well, yeah. Turn to John chapter 8. And you'll see we're going to eavesdrop in on a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. John chapter 8, verse 44, he says to these guys, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember that. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus said, you guys are just like your dad. Your chips off the old block. A liar, a murderer. That's what you guys are doing. So Jesus had no problem identifying the kids of the devil by their birthmarks. And apparently neither does John. This second birthmark, the second litmus test for the children of God is very simple. Do you love that is agape? Not phileo or any other kind of uh, inferior love, but do you Agape, love your brother. Verse 11. He says, for this is, I'm sorry, back in, in our text, First John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John says, look, the second birthmark is that you love your brother. And this goes way back, he says. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. From the first time you laid eyes on me, from the first time that we shared the gospel, this has been elementary. Matter of fact, turn to John chapter, First John chapter 2, just back a page or so. Look at verse 7. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. And we found out as we went through that text, he's talking about loving your brother as Christ loves you. This is elementary, he says it goes way back. If you go back to John chapter 15, verse 12, you hear it from Jesus' own lips. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you go back two more chapters, John chapter 13, 34 and 35, you hear it from Jesus own lips. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Agape love. That is, even when it's not returned, that you also love one another. By this, he says, all will know that you are my disciples. Birthmark. If you have love one for another. See, John says, look, this is elementary. This is fundamental This command, this message goes back to the very beginning. And then John says, and by the way, so does the defiance of this message. Because look at 1 John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 11, but here it comes in verse 12. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. John says, hey, let me give you an example, a negative example. Excuse me. John says, look, when you hate your brother or your sister in Christ, you can trace your family tree right back to Cain, who murdered his brother. And you can see where you get your birthmark. John says, look, Cain was born of the wicked one. Did you see that? Hate. It's that birthmark of the devil. And John goes on to tie these two birthmarks together. Look at verse 12. Um, He says, and why did he murder him? Here it is, because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. 
don't know if you see that, but what he's doing there is saying, look, he has the one birthmark because he had the other birthmark. He, his works were evil, his brothers were righteous, and that infuriated him, and he showed himself to be a murderer, one filled with hate. Turn to uh, Genesis chapter 4. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Genesis chapter 4, Abel is practicing righteousness. He, we have no doubt, was not perfect, but he gave an animal sacrifice. It's uh, easy to deduce that the Lord had required that, had said, hey, if you want to worship, this is the way to do it. We know that by now they had already uh, had to kill an animal to pay for, uh, to cover, we should say, Adam and Eve's sin. <clears throat> so Abel comes bringing a sacrifice according to the Lord, right? <clears throat> An animal sacrifice. Cain apparently wanted to come to God. He wanted to worship God. He's a worshiper of God, right? He's in the family, supposedly. But he wanted to worship God on his own terms. And that's another name for, we learned it on Sunday, rebellion. Right? Why did Cain want to murder Abel? Because he looked at Abel. Abel was, his sacrifice was accepted. Cain wanted to come on his own term, and it didn't work for him. Birthmark one is rebellion, right? Not practicing righteousness. Cain showed that early on. And here comes birthmark number two. Genesis chapter four, God warned Cain. Look at verse six. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. See, God had warned him, said, look, I see this in you, this this unrighteousness, but it's not too late, Cain. You, You can turn this around. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't do well, sin lies at the door now. But watch his his choice. The very next scene, verse eight. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know if you guys hear it, but I sure hear it in that verse. Uh, when When I hear that out of our kids, we call that a sassy mouth. Am I my brother's keeper? That rebellion showing itself right there. Right. Birthmark one is right there in the rebellion. But birthmark two is that he hated his brother and he murdered him. Now, that word murdered uh, in our text. First John, matter of fact, you can turn there back now. First John, chapter three, that word murder. Literally in the Greek, it means slaughter. It's a violent, brutal death. So that first murder. Where Cain rose up and slew, probably slit his brother's throat. That was literally a child of the devil making his father proud. Right? The Bible says that the enemy comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Pardon the pun, but the enemy must have looked at at him and said, man, I did a great job of raising Cain. Right? He's... This, he's a chip off the old block. Here's a guy that makes me proud. So verse 13, first 
John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. There's just kind of right in the middle, smack dab in the middle, dropped in here, I think, is a word of encouragement again to all of the ables, and I hope there's many here tonight of the world, which is, why are you surprised? When, when you do right, when you are practicing righteousness, yeah, you're not nailing it, but you're practicing it. Why are you surprised when the world hates you? Do you guys ever marvel when the world hates you? You're like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to do right here. I'm trying to be a, a good guy. I'm relatively nice. I'm trying to live by the statutes that the Lord has given me. I love Jesus. I'm a relatively nice person. Why is it that the world hates me? Well, you have your answer right here, right? First John chapter three, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. The reason is because you are enjoying a genuine, abundant life with your creator. And that was exactly what Abel was doing. When you when that happens, when you actually enjoy your your life with your creator, you will see the devil raising Cain against you. Right. He says, look, don't marvel when the kings of this world, when they seethe, when they plot, they try everything they can to bring you down. Matter of fact, if you again, if you're thinking in terms of pictures, I can almost guarantee you it will happen. If you're an, uh, an able in your place of work, it will happen no matter what field you're in. It will happen no matter what field of society you're in. It will happen if your own flesh and blood, your family, is not Christian. They'll like, they won't like the fact that you have this relationship with God. And the sad thing is, guys, that sometimes it even happens in the, quote, family of God. And that's John's whole point here is it should not happen in the family of God. But it's a shame that it happens when you are practicing righteousness and someone doesn't enjoy that same relationship and it drives them crazy. Whenever that happens to you and you, you are in able spot, remember, look, it goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Um, I just found three other verses that underline this really quick. Psalm thirty-two, twelve. Look, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes his teeth and gnashes at him with his teeth. Proverbs twenty nine twenty seven. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. And John chapter 10, verse 32, really means you're in good company because Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which one of those do you stone me? Right? Look, I've only done good. Uh, which one of those is the reason that you are trying to kill me? So application for you. Look, if you're truly pursuing righteousness with all you with all you can, don't marvel when the world hates you. Instead, look at verse 14. Rejoice in verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That word passed is metabeno. It means to pass from one thing, one place or one state to another. Um, and the word death there. I think you understand what it is, but let me read a kind of an amplified definition for you. It's thanatos in the Greek. In the widest sense, this word uh, is death comprising all the miseries arising from sin. 
as well as physical death as the loss of life consecrated to God and blessed in him on earth to be followed by wretchedness in hell. Okay, pretty conclusive there. Then life, and we've shared this definition many times. It's the word zoe. I love this. The definition is life, real and genuine, a life active and vigorous, devoted to God, blessed in the portion, even in this world of those who put their trust in Christ. But after the resurrection to be consummated by new accessions among them, a more perfect body and to last forever. Zoe, it's this picture of abundant life now and later. Thanatos is a picture of death now and later. And John says, look, rejoice. Because you have passed from one to the other. Y'all, that's the the story of Christian resurrection, right? Passing from sin and death, both now and eternally, to life abundantly and satisfying, both now and eternally. The, The evidence, though, verse 14, of this passing from death to life is what? Loving the brethren. Again, we come back to this assurance. We've seen all of the texts in our in our book here fall under in, into the grid of one of these four categories right here would be assurance right we know that we have passed from death to life we have that assurance because we love the brethren so let me ask you do you have assurance well you say well i guess that depends on what you mean by loving the brethren cuz maybe you say hey in general i do Love the brethren. It's just that one particular brother or sister that I can't stand. Well, look at the rest of verse 14. He who does not love his brother singular abides in death. That's a that's a big difference. Like if you read verse 14 up to that point and stop, you could maybe convince yourself, okay, yeah, I love the brethren. You know, I... I come to church, I have that warm, fuzzy feeling about the church body in general, right? John clarifies, though, look, the second birthmark that I'm talking about is not some overall warm, fuzzy feeling that you have for the church body. It's not the joy that you have with a few easy-to-love believers, because there are some, right? Believe it or not, there's a few believers that are actually easy-to-love, who think and see things just the way that you do. No, brother in the singular means that person who rubs you the wrong way. That person who gets on your nerves. That person who steps on your toes. That person who seems to want to dance on your feet. That person that requires all of your patience. That person who's irritating, aggravating. Now you ask, okay, does this mean then I'm supposed to have a warm, fuzzy feeling toward every single member of the body? Well, my first response is, good luck with that. But it does say we are supposed to love them. You say, I don't get that. I I don't understand that. Well, hold that thought. We'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to show you how important this matter really is, because he says he who does not love his brother abides in death. I can't get this picture out of my head, so I thought I'd share it with you. Do you guys remember what the word abide means? 
right? That illustration we've been using over and over again, it's uh, that I stole from uh, Damien Kyle. It means to imagine an easy chair when you, when you were talking about abiding in the vine, John chapter 15. Imagine, imagine this awesome lazy boy, right, that you can just sink into and relax, settle down in, right? Just kind of just settle yourself there. Well, when I read this verse, it says abide in death. And I cannot help but get the picture of someone who calls themselves a Christian. And they, they're speaking the right words. And maybe they're making even good moral choices. But they refuse to love that difficult brother. They're saying in their minds or in their hearts, I hate that guy. I loathe that brother. I mean, I, it wouldn't hurt me if I never saw that guy or that girl again. Well, imagine, I imagine it like a dream where you think you're in an easy chair and suddenly you realize you're in an electric chair. Because <laughs> it says, he who does not love his brother abides. Oh, you think you're abiding in this nice easy chair. Turns out you're abiding in death. He who does not love his brother abides, that is, settled down in death. Well, you say, well, that's a bit extreme. I mean, just because I won't forgive one or two people, just because I refuse to love one or two people, listen, and this is, this, we find this continually true. This is not because of your actions, but what's happening is when you refuse to forgive, when you refuse to love, what you're doing is exposing the fact that you're still a murderer at heart. It's not your action. It's your heart that's the issue. And you're, you're saying that you still are abiding in death. You say, well, wait a second. I'm not a murderer. Well, look at verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is a, a great quote that I, I'm going to steal this week. I try to steal one every week or so. Hatred is just murder in embryonic form. Hatred is just murder in embryonic form, right? And we know that to be true. It's, it's backed up by the scriptures. Lust is what? Adultery in embryonic form. Covetousness is just stealing in embryonic form. James chapter 1 verse 15 says that when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin and sin when it is finished brings forth death. So John says and James says, look, if you hate, if you literally hate someone who's a brother, says you're a murderer, you're just like Cain. You say, well, I still don't buy that. Where does where do they get that? I mean, that just seems too extreme to make that jump. Well, Matthew chapter five, verse 22 Jesus, right after he got done saying, look, if you lust in your heart, if you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's like committing adultery. Then he goes on to say, Matthew 5, 22, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in da danger of the council. But whoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. The, the concept is, look, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer at heart. 
If you've got hatred in in your heart toward another brother, if you refuse to forgive, if you refuse to apologize, if you will not humble yourself before another brother, John is saying to you, you're a murderer. I think James is saying to you, James 1, verse 15, look, you're just an early stage of a murderer. I'm saying to you, you're in the early stages of murder. Jesus is saying to you, you're in the early stages of murder. Pretty serious. He's saying, look, you've got some serious issues to deal with if I'm describing you. Are you really settled down in the easy chair or is it an electric chair? Again, please, not because of your actions, but because your actions expose your heart. Right? Expose your real nature. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, practical question probably comes up from this. What does that mean? Does that mean a murderer cannot be saved? I mean, can a murderer be saved? Let me finish this phrase, but I think you'll understand what I mean when I say it this way. Yes and no. You're like, what? Yes, anyone, murderers, real-life murderers included, can be saved by surrendering their life to Jesus, right? Case in point, Saul. He was a murderer before he became Paul. <clears throat> Did you Have you thought about this? Moses killed an Egyptian. You can be forgiven, right? You can be saved, forgiven from this uh, sin of murder. Well, David, he wasn't, didn't actually uh, pull the string that sent the arrow into Uriah's heart. But he made sure he was complicit in that murder, right? So, yes, a murderer can be saved, but here's the no. But no, a murderer cannot be saved and remain a murderer. Like, you wouldn't have a conversation with a murderer and he, he says to you, hey, I'm a Christian now. I used to murder every weekend, but now it's just like once or twice a year. Like, actually, this is kind of John's point, isn't it? If someone were to come to you and say, I'm a Christian. I just have this little problem. I'm a serial killer. You would say, okay, something's wrong. You are still abiding in death. Well, John turns that around on you and says, so how can you say I'm a Christian? I just have this little problem of hating a certain person in the body. Do you see that murder is the same disease as hatred, but it's just further along? Now, that brings us back to the question, though. Maybe you're thinking, OK, all right, I get this. But try as I might. I just don't like that person. I mean, how am I supposed to deal with this emotionally? I just, well, I've just got to be honest. I, no matter how you describe it, I still don't like that person very much. Maybe you're thinking, look, people in this church are annoying and grating and rude and selfish. And that's just a pastor. Maybe you're thinking, how am I supposed to love them when I can't even make myself like them? Well, verse 16, by this we know love, 
because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I don't know if you see it, but really this is good news if you are willing. This is really good news and might help some of you. Because if you're dealing with that emotional thing. Listen, agape love is not a feeling. It's an action. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. John 3.16, the parallel verse, interesting, John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16. It's pretty neat. But John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he got all emotional and just really warm and fuzzy all about the world. No, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the most precious thing to him. Right. This corresponding verse does not say we know love because he told us in flowery language and showed us all emotionally how much he loved us. No, he showed us love, what it really looks like by what? Laying down his life. And we've we've seen this over and over again, too. It's not necessarily saying that we're going to each one of us have an opportunity to literally lay down our lives for another. But when you realize that what he did was came from heaven to earth and laid down his rights, his rights as God, he laid down everything, his rights included. Well, that actually makes it something that we can actually do. Right. He, he came to this world. He laid down his life and his rights. He endured the cross, the shame, the spitting, the broken fellowship with the father that he had never experienced before. He'd never experienced broken fellowship with his father. All to show us love. Love is an action. Love is giving something up. Love is laying something down. And listen, <laughs> especially for someone who doesn't deserve it. Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners when we least deserved it, Christ died for us. So First John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. <laughs> I don't know about you, but again, if you're willing to receive this, this can actually be pretty freeing. That person that you're thinking of, it's like, I don't know that I'm ever going to just have the warm and fuzzy feelings about that person. You, you don't necessarily have to have the warm and fuzzy feelings. What you need to do is obey the word of God. Lay down your rights for them. Lay down your life. Sacrifice for them. The good news and the bad news, depending on how you look at it, you only have to treat them the way that Christ treated you while you were still a sinner. Maybe for you that means to tell them that you forgive them. Or maybe for you that means to decide to literally over and over again, as long as it takes, spend your time forgetting that offense. Maybe that for you means to lay down your pound of flesh or to admit you were wrong or pray for that person who despitefully used you 
matter of fact, an awesome application for everybody in the room, but particularly if you've been offended or hurt. Do something that that person completely doesn't deserve. You'll freak them out. I promise. Emotion is not required, but apparently, according to these texts, action is. Now, we're going to pick this up again on verse uh, verse 16 on Sunday. So I'm not going to exposit all of, uh, in depth these next couple of verses, but I want to show you some. Verse 17. But whoever, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, there's the same idea, same concept, which is this. Verse 18, uh, the new Doug version. Talk is cheap. Love is an action. It's a sacrifice. John says in verse 18, again, we're going to get more into this on Sunday, but look, don't just tell them you love them. Show them. He says, love not in word or in tongue only, but in deed and truth. So I want to close tonight with a challenge to you guys, to me as well. Look for ways the rest of this week, uh, next week. It would be awesome if we were to actually get in the habit of this. Look for ways to actually put love into action. Not, not words, but actions. That might mean giving your resources, that which you have worked hard to, uh, to acquire for yourself. That would be, be basically verse 17, right? Giving of your resources. But maybe you're like so many today, you don't have resources. What about maybe then giving your time? Like something unusual, like offering to babysit for a couple that needs a date night. Um, Offering to come and help clean a house where someone's just, they're completely under it. They can't seem to to get uh, their head above water. Visiting a sick person, making a meal. The awesome thing is that I I can look out and know that some of you guys do these things regularly. But if you're you're not, or even if you are, I just want to encourage you. Because verse 18, my little children, he says that in love. Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And here's the thing. If you want to really, really make some headway to spiritual maturity, because, right, one of the things we do, application, right? If you really want to, like, supercharge your application this week, do something practical like that. For the person who least deserves it. Now, I'll probably end up with a lot of people doing stuff for me. (laughs) Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Do you see what he's saying? Look, this comes back to blessed assurance. If you want to know that you're, you got the heart of God, that you got that birthmark, well, what would Jesus do, right? Laying down your life, your rights. When you act against your own self-interest, and this even says, when you act even against your own feelings, when you lay down your life, when you make, when you lay down your life one selfless decision at a time, he says, look, you can have confidence 
By this we know that we are of the truth and we shall assure our hearts before him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for, for these, your saints. Thank you, Lord, for how much you love each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that by this we know love. We wouldn't even really be able to grasp agape love, Lord, without your example. Lord, I was listening uh, to some to a preacher, and he pointed out that if we look at the the wonderful, beautiful world that's around us, we can learn a lot of things from about you. Lord, but we don't really understand love until we see your son upon the cross. We thank you for that. And Lord, help us. Lord, if there's anyone here who is still abiding in death, Lord, please convict, Lord. Please don't let up until you have brought that person, Lord, completely into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that if anyone is hearing your words and you're convicting them, that we know, Lord, that you, the thing that you do, Lord, you'll, you'll work to the, to the end. Lord, if there's anyone who the enemy is trying to, to wrestle with, trying to keep from making that decision, Lord, that commitment to you, I ask that you would bind his word. That your, your uh, love, Lord, would, would be supreme in this place. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.